The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, let's take our Bibles now and turn together again today to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. First epistle to Timothy. And we're picking up today now, moving into chapter 2. And I'll be reading uh, verses 1 to 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So follow with me as I read. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you now at the outset of our consideration of your holy word. We come, Lord, acknowledging that we need the help of your spirit to illuminate our minds, to give us understanding. We think of how the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus, how he opened the hearts of those two disciples that they would understand the scriptures. And they spoke of how their hearts burned within them. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that by your spirit, you would come and, and do that work in our hearts today and open up your word to us. Give us faith to believe your word confidently and give us hearts to obey your word. We pray that you would instruct us and guide us in your truth. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Now, as we return today to our study of um, this first epistle to, to uh, Timothy, I remind you that uh, Paul is concerned to give instruction to Timothy regarding the supervision of the church in Ephesus. And Timothy has been left there for a time to, as Paul's apostolic deputy, to set certain things in order, uh, beginning, first of all, in chapter 1 with the church's doctrine. You remember certain men had arisen in the church who promoted myths and endless genealogies leading to idle speculations and disputes, men who claimed to possess a special and hidden knowledge and who desired to be looked up to as teachers of the law, while among other things, failing to distinguish the proper relationship between the law and the gospel. Indeed, two of them, having cast off a good conscience, had made shipwreck concerning the faith and had to be excommunicated, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And that's where we left off last week. But now Paul continues in chapter 2, having addressed false doctrine and these false teachers to urge upon Timothy various important guidelines regarding the conduct of public worship and the regulation of church practice. 
And a key text here, I think, for understanding the context is what Paul says over in chapter 3. If you look over there at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And Paul writes there, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. Now, actually, uh, that's that, uh, the, that pronoun is added in the English text to smooth out the reading, but there's no pronoun in the Greek text that could more, more literally be translated how it is necessary to behave, or we could translate it how people ought to conduct themselves, how it is necessary to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So there's this concern about ch proper church practice. And these things I write to you really refers back to at least the entirety of this second chapter that we've now come to and of the third chapter up to that point. And the case can be made for saying it really also includes everything else that follows in the, in, the, in the book from that point. So there is this concern about the way things are done in the church, which we're going to continue to see in this letter. Uh, this is the context, the public worship and the life of the church. And the first thing that Paul mentions, as we see here in our text this morning, is this matter of the prayers of the church, uh, verses 1 to 8, and really going on into verse 9. And then he mentions the roles of men and women in the church. There's some overlap with verse 9, and that runs down to verse 15. Then in chapter 3, the elders of the church, and then the deacons of the church, and so on. But again, in the passage we come to today, the focus is the prayers of the church. Now, we shouldn't pass lightly over the fact that this is the first thing Paul mentions. He says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made. And this adverb translated first, it's used in a couple of different ways. It sometimes speaks of first in sequence or uh, first uh, chronologically. Uh, this is simply the first thing in the list of things that I want to mention. Or sometimes the same word is used to refer to that which is first in rank or first in importance. Now, since it's more often used to speak of, of um, more often used to speak of first in sequence, perhaps that's that's the way we should take it here. Some argue, but even if we do, it's significant that this is where Paul begins. He chooses to make this the first matter that he addresses when it comes to the practice of the church. So I think both ideas are here: first in sequence and first in importance. And that understanding, I believe, is supported and strengthened by the fact that he qualifies this word translated first by the word translated of all, the genitive plural, the first of all the things, or the first of all things. This is, and this is the only place in the New Testament that we see this combination of these two words together. What is first mentioned is first of all, first in relationship to everything else that I'm going to say, that I'm going to uh, that's going to follow in this letter. So I think it's correct then to understand this not merely as a random order in which he just happens to take this up first for no real reason. No, he's underscoring that this matter of prayer is to hold a peculiar place of priority and importance in the life of the church. Jeff Thomas commenting on this points out that it's important to divide up our Christian lives and I would add the church's life into essentials and incidentals. 
There are many incidentals, or what are sometimes called circumstances in church life, that are not in the realm of essentials. Things like copy machines, buildings, hymn books, sound systems, websites, social media presence, pianos, and so on. These things can be very helpful, but they're not essential. Thomas points out, for example, that the words pray, or prayer and so on, are found in the New Testament 163 times. In contrast, the word music is only found one time. It's found in the parable of the prodigal son. You may remember when the elder brother returned from the fields and he he hears the sound of music and celebration. So music is only mentioned one time. Now we do have musicians or harps mentioned something like five times, mostly in the book of the Revelation. But by comparison, prayer is mentioned 163 times. Yeah, isn't it interesting how so many Christians and so many churches put such great emphasis on music in the church? They give a lot of attention to this and get very worked up about this, and this is really a big deal to them. Indeed, this is the number one factor for many when determining what church they attend. The important thing is the music. But we rarely see that same kind of concern when it comes to prayer. Now, I'm not saying music is bad, not at all. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about it at all, no. But the point I'm making is how much more exceedingly uh, uh, more important is this matter of prayer in the church. Give me a church that's devoted to prayer and knows how to truly pray, and if the music doesn't quite meet up to professional standards, I can live with that. What about singing? Singing praise to God is an important part of church life and practice. A very important part. And unlike music, singing is not just an incidental. It is an essential. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is a commanded as well as a delightful aspect of public worship. And music can help us sing better, but it's singing that's essential. However, even so, even though that's true, The words sing, singing, or song are only mentioned something like 13 times in the New Testament. But again, prayer is mentioned 163 times. And this reminds us that not only can a legitimate distinction be made between incidentals and essentials, we may also distinguish when it comes to priorities. There are some things that we are to do that are more important than other things we are to do. Things to which priority of place and emphasis should be given in the church. Preaching is one of them, of course, but not only preaching, priority should be given to prayer as well. Indeed, again, this is where Paul begins. Therefore, I exhort first, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made. And dear brothers and sisters, do you think of prayer in this way? Uh, Do you think of church life in this way? Do you see it as a priority, uh, as among the first things in, in importance when it comes to your life and to the life of the church? Well, Paul reminds us here that we should, we should. Now, what I want to do is right now is just kind of give you a kind of helicopter flyover of the whole passage to kind of settle us into the context before we begin to open up the details. You'll notice first we have an exhortation for the church to pray. 
Therefore I exhort, first of all, the kinds of prayer we are to engage in, supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks, for whom we are to pray, for all men. And this includes kings and all who are in authority. And the goal of such prayers is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. But then after this exhortation to pray for all men, Paul then lays before us the reasons and the basis for praying like this in the church. First, that God is pleased with this kind of praying. It is good and acceptable in his sight, verse 3. Second, because God desires all men to be saved, verse 4. Third, because with respect to all men, there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ, verse 5. Four, because Christ has given himself as a ransom, the benefit of which is offered to all men, verse 6. And then fifthly, because this is keeping with the universal scope of the gospel ministry entrusted to Paul and by implication to the church throughout the ages. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, not only for the Jews, but a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, verse 7. And so there you go. We can go home. We've got it, right? <clears throat> Now, as I can trust you can see, though, one of the reasons I want to kind of give you this overview of this context is that this is not only a call to the church to pray, it's a call to the church to pray with an evangelistic concern. To pray being moved by a genuine concern for the advancement of the gospel and the salvation of sinners. Well, we're not going to cover all of this today. We'll go as far as time will allow us, and we'll come back, God willing, to this passage again next time. It's a wonderful passage. <laughs> Not only because of what it tells us about prayer, but also because it sets before us the gracious heart of God toward sinners. And it's also a passage that can help us, those of us who are, are reformed and our commitment to the reformed faith, which I believe is a biblical faith, it can help us not to fall into the trap of a narrow-hearted hyper-Calvinism. In other words, this passage is a reminder that God has goodwill toward all sinners of mankind. It's a reminder, my lost, unsaved friend here this morning, that God loves you, and he sincerely desires your salvation, and that Christ has made an atonement. He has given himself as a ransom for sin that is sufficient for all, including you, and that this Christ and the salvation he has provided by his death is freely offered to you, to you personally, to take and to lay hold of by faith as your very own. But before we get to that, let's focus now this morning on this exhortation to prayer that Paul gives in verses 1 to 2. And consider with me, first of all, the kinds of prayer we are to engage in. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made. Now, these are all just different words used in the New Testament to describe prayer, each perhaps with a slightly different emphasis. Now, you remember he's speaking here of the public, public prayers in the church. Now, the word that's translated prayers, again, is just really a general word for all kinds of prayer. But whenever you see it mentioned together with other words for prayer like we have here, uh, it draws our attention to this element of this word, which is, is emphasizing that it is a drawing near to God. It is prayer as worship. There's this matter of remembering who it is we are approaching in prayer, being conscious that we are coming before the great and glorious God and drawing near to him with reverence and worship and not just running in with a prayer list. 
as Jesus taught us in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. What is the first petition? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now through Christ, we who are his people can draw near to him with confidence as our Father. But we must never forget in our approach to him that he is our Father who is in heaven. And therefore we are to approach him not only with confidence, but with worshipful reverence. We are coming before him when we pray. And then the two words translated supplications and intercessions speak of making earnest requests for specific needs and specific people. There's this idea of entreaty, pleading, making earnest requests for needs that are specifically expressed in our prayers. Think of Abraham in Genesis 18, pleading for his nephew Lot in the city of Sodom. He's very direct. He's very specific. Lord, will you spare the city if you find 50 righteous people there? What if 45, or it keeps working his way, 30, 20, 10? God, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And you remember, God assured him that he would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And in answer to Abraham's supplications and intercessions, his nephew Lot and his family were spared. Some of you who have read the autobiography of John G. Patton. Pastor Nick was referring to it last Sunday evening. Remember, uh, Pat was the missionary to the cannibals in the South Sea Islands. And you may remember the record he gives of the prayers of one of the natives who had been converted. Now, this man, think about it. This man had been a cannibal chief. I mean, just shortly before this, he's running about in the jungle naked, killing people and eating them. Okay? He was a, a cannibal chief. But he's now a Christian, and his name was Kawia, and he and his wife and children were living in the mission house for a time. A terrible sickness and fever had inflicted the missionaries, and one of the other missionaries, Mr. Johnston, died of the fever, and then his wife also died, and John Patton himself was also seriously ill with this fever. But drifting in and out of consciousness, Patton could hear Kawia praying, this former cannibal, had become a new man in Christ, his sins forgiven, and now he loved the true and living God and loved his Bible and loved God's people. And Patton could hear him crying to God in prayer. And he recorded later what he heard. He said, Kawia prayed, Oh, Lord Jesus, Missy Johnson. That's what, how they referred to the missionaries. They called him Missy. Missy Johnston is dead. You have taken him away from this land. Missy Johnston, the woman, and Missy Patton are very ill. I am sick, and your servants, the Anitamese, are all sick and dying. O oh Lord, our Father in heaven, are you going to take away all your servants and your worship from this dark land? What do you mean to do, O oh Lord? The Tannese hate you and your worship and your servants. But surely, O oh Lord, you cannot forsake Tana and leave our people to die in darkness. Oh, make the hearts of this people soft to your word and sweet to your worship. Teach them to fear and love Jesus. And oh, restore and spare Missy, dear Missy Patton, and that Tana may be saved. Now, brothers and sisters, that's supplications and intercessions. That's an example of making earnest petitions for specific needs and specific people that are specifically addressed 
in our prayers. Not just saying, Lord, bless us. Or Lord, bless so-and-so, but being specific. Laying out our requests before him with scriptural reasons and arguments. The Lord wants us to do this, and he loves to answer such prayers from his people. And then, of course, we have here the word thanksgiving, reminding us that all of our praying should come from a thankful heart, not a bitter heart, an angry heart, or a murmuring spirit, but we should be reminding ourselves of all the things that we have to be thankful for. And this also tells us that giving thanks for the mercies of God and for those we are praying for should have a part in the church's prayers. So we have the kinds of prayer we are to engage in. But then notice, secondly, the scope of our prayers. Or we could say the object of our prayers. Who are we to pray for? Well, first of all, it says we are to pray for all men. I exhort that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, of course, it's impossible to pray specifically and by name for every single human being who lives on the face of the earth. Perhaps there's a computer program out there with a database uh, containing all the names of eligible voters in the United States, and you could get one for Great Britain and countries in Europe and so on. No, of course not. That's not what Paul's talking about. I, I looked this up this week. As of 2023, the population of the world is over 8 billion. 8 billion people. Now, if my math is correct, which rarely it is, but I think it's correct here. If my math is correct... To pray for every one of them by name would require you to pray for something like over 28,409 people a day for 80 years. Obviously, that's not what Paul's talking about. No. Uh, the word all is used here as it often is in the New Testament in a general kind of way to refer to lots of people and all kinds of people. Just like when it says, everyone went out to the Jordan to be baptized of John. It doesn't mean every person, literally every single person in Israel, but that lots of people and all kinds of people and crowds. And so the word is being used, it seems, in the same way, in this general kind of way here. Our public prayers, in other words, are not to be restricted to me and mine, but they're to be expansive and universal in their scope. And I think it's very possible that part of the background of this exhortation is these false teachers that we consider back in chapter 1 with their fixation on these restrictive genealogies and fables and a Jewish approach to the law and this, this, these elitist claims to a special knowledge, all of which was probably producing a kind of exclusivistic attitude and an exclusive gospel that's only for special folks who meet up to certain criteria. But no, the church's prayers are not to be limited. They are to take in all kinds, all classes, all categories, all peoples, nations, tribes, tongues, saved and unsaved, and whoever God may bring into our attention or into our lives at any given time. Now, at the re risk of getting ahead of myself a little bit, it's clear from the rest of this, this passage that these prayers are to be marked by an evangelistic concern. I, I commented on that at the beginning. We are to pray for all men because of God's plan of salvation for the world. 
Now, did you notice when you read the passage, this emphasis on all, all men that keeps being repeated, it runs right through this entire passage. We are to pray for all men, for all kinds of people. And then Paul goes on to tell us why. Verse 4, because God desires all men to be saved. And because, verse 5, there's only one God and one mediator between God and men for all men, Jesus Christ. And because, verse 6, there's only one Savior who has given himself up as a ransom for all. And because the gospel is to be preached, not just to Jews, but to the world, to Gentiles as well. Verse 7, so there is this emphasis throughout this passage upon the global scope of the gospel and the global mission of the church. And Paul tells us that this is to be reflected in the church's prayers. Quoting from Philip Reich and commenting on this, he says, the public prayers of the church should have a global perspective. Many evangelical churches have abbreviated the pastoral prayer or eliminated it altogether. And I would add to that, many have also all but eliminated public prayer meetings as well. And he goes on to say, the Apostle Paul would have been shocked by this trend because he considered prayer of first importance in the public worship of God. And Reichen goes on to write, even when it's offered today, however, congregational prayer is sometimes self-centered and fails to venture very far beyond today's offering or Aunt Edna's kidney. Pastoral prayers, and I would add the church's public prayer meetings, ought rather to be large, expansive, and wide-ranging. They should include the great issues of the day and the vast nations of the world. Intercessions should be made for renewal, revival, and reformation in the church. Prayer should be offered up for missionaries, evangelists, and church planters. And we could go on with this. Praying for the lost community. Praying for the lost who attend our church services as well as praying for the pressing needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here and abroad. This is the kind of prayer Paul is talking about in this passage, my dear friends. Samuel Miller, the old Princeton theologian of the 19th century in his classic book entitled Thoughts on Public Prayer, and this is one of those books somewhere in our curriculum want to make sure that all of the guys in the seminary read this book, Thoughts on Public Prayer, by Samuel Miller. He said this, a good public prayer ought always to include a strongly marked reference to the spread of the gospel and earnest petitions for the success of the means employed by the church for that purpose. As it forms a large part of the duty of the church to spread the knowledge of the way of salvation to all around her and to send it to the utmost of her power to all within her reach, who are destitute of it, so she ought never to assemble without recognizing this obligation and fervently praying for grace and strength to fulfill it. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often this is lacking in the church, how often in so many churches have the public prayers become nothing more than praying through a sick list. Now, we should do that. We should pray for the sick in our congregations and in our families. We, that's important. But even more importantly, we must pray for all men regarding their desperate need for the salvation that God is able and ready to freely give to any sinner who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. John Stott tells about visiting a church one Sunday. Uh, the pastor who usually 
preached, was on vacation that week, and one of the other elders was leading the public prayer. And Stott tells us that the elder, he says, prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village God of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Now, by contrast to that, I want you to listen to this description of another man, of his experience attending prayer meetings in the Gilcomston South Church in Aberdeen, Scotland. And this was when William Steele was the pastor there. Some of you may have heard of him. He, he died not too long ago. He pastored there for many, many years. Some of his little books have been published by different Reformed book publishers. Um, but anyway, here's the description of, of the prayer meetings. Every Saturday night, think about that. Every Saturday night, the congregation gathered for two solid hours of intercession for the worldwide progress of the gospel. At the front of the prayer hall was a large board listing the names and locations of ministers and missionaries who had been sent out by the church. The members began praying their way around the city of Aberdeen. Then they prayed for Scotland and the British Isles. Soon someone would mention one of the other continents and prayer would continue country by country until nearly the whole world was surrounded in prayer. It was part prayer meeting and part geography lesson. Gil Comston was committed to praying for every way, everyone the way a gospel preaching church should. And let me just pause to say that I thank God that our own church is a praying church. I thank God for that. If you're here this morning and you, you're not attending the prayer meetings on Wednesday evenings, my friend, you're missing out. You should be here. What a blessing those prayer meetings are. But brothers and sisters, let us be challenged by these things to excel in this kind of public praying more and more both in prayer meetings and in our public worship services on the Lord's Day. Let us remember what God's Word says. In James chapter 4, verse 2, you have not because you ask not. Well, let that not be said of us, but let us pray more earnestly, more consistently for the salvation of sinners. And let us pray with expectancy for our God is a God who has made himself known in contrast to all other false gods and all other false religions of this world. He has made himself known and he declares himself to be the God who hears prayer. Psalm 65, 2. And he is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for sinners. And he sent his son not merely to be the savior of some particular race, or color, or some privileged class of people, or only of some frozen few in some restricted corner of the city, or the country, or the world. But he has sent him to save a vast multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue, and to do it in part through the prayers of his church. The kinds of prayers we are to engage in. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks. The scope of our prayers. Who are we to pray for? First of all, for all men. But then secondly, secondly, he goes on to specify 
certain persons that must not be left out in our prayers. And I have to say, as I was studying this passage, I felt deeply convicted about this. And this is one of the blessings of being a pastor. You study your sermons, and it's not only for the people, it's for your own heart, your own teaching, your own conviction. Persons that are to be included in our prayers, that those to whom Paul is writing may not have thought worthy of those prayers. He says, particularly, the church is to pray for kings and all who are in authority. And I mentioned that those Paul's writing to may not have naturally thought of this or to thought that such were even worthy of their prayers. For one thing, the traditional prayers in the Jewish synagogues did not include uh, prayers for people in authority, especially for Gentile civil officials. And this instruction is, is all the more remarkable when we consider that at this time in history, there were no Christian rulers anywhere. There were no Christian kings, only pagan kings. Nero was the emperor of Rome at that time. You remember, you remember him, the Nero, who used Christians as torches to light his garden. Well, he's the emperor at this point. And many of the emperors who followed him threw Christians to the lions. And not only were there no Christian kings, there were no, or if any, very, very few civil officials of any kind who were Christians. The civil magistrates of that time were either indifferent to the gospel or many of them were enemies of the gospel and persecutors of Christians. Persecution was at first sporadic, but it was soon to become commonplace and systemic and in many cases very violent. And yet Paul tells Timothy not to call for revolution, not to organize underground Christian militias, but to instruct the church to pray for them, to pray for kings and all who are in authority. That includes for us presidents, governors, the Senate, the House. God's word is telling us to pray for those people we may sometimes be most tempted to despise. We are to pray for our civil government and its leaders, whether they are Christians or not whether they are good men or evil men, even in the Old Testament, after the fall of Jerusalem, during the exile. God taught his people, told his people to pray for their pagan rulers. In Jeremiah 29, 7, God through the prophet instructed the people to pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. In Ezra 6, 10, after the edict of the Persian emperor Cyrus, Ordering uh, the rebuilding of the temple, Cyrus asked the Jews to pray for the life of the king and his sons. In the early church, this passage before us was taken very seriously. For example, Clement of Rome, toward the end of the first century, in one of his letters to a church, included a prayer for rulers and governors. Grant them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, so that they may give no offense in administering the government you have given them. And we see this in the writings of Tertullian as well. And how relevant this passage is for us, brothers and sisters. How relevant 
It is at all times, but how much more in this election year? It's very timely. We've come to this passage. There's a lot of talk about politics and politicians right now. And we Christians can get very caught up in this and we get frustrated and we even get angry at what we see and we criticize and we condemn and we make jokes about our leaders and can even despise many of our civil officials. And the truth is that many of them are ungodly and wicked and are promoting evil and perversion in our country. But here's what God's word tells us we are to do. We are to pray for them. If you don't like the president, I don't like him very much either, pray for him. Pray for him. If you don't like the vice president, pray for her. If you don't like Trump, I'm not too thrilled with him either. He becomes president, pray for him. If you don't like the governor, pray for him. Pray for the city council. Pray for the Congress. Pray for the, the Supreme Court and the decisions that they have to make. How much time do we spend praying for them compared to the amount of time we spend complaining about them? It's a good question, isn't it? It's convicting to me. Brothers and sisters, when we look at our own country and we see so many problems, it seems that the foundations of our great nation, my dear friends, they are crumbling around us as I speak. The times we live in today are desperate times. But let me ask you, my dear friends, and all of you fretting about it, how much time do you, how much time do I spend praying for our civil government? Brothers and sisters, do we believe in prayer? Do we really believe that God hears the prayers of his people? Listen, there is more power in a praying church and in praying churches to change things for good in this country than there is in thousands of political action committees well-funded by billions and billions of dollars. More than there is in some kind of Christian theonomic think tank developing political strategies. Often, not always, but often I believe all of that stuff and all of the fretting and the tough guy, arrogant snarkiness that often comes with it. It's nothing but a testimony to the fact that Christians don't really believe in the power of prayer like we should. Instead, we put our trust and our hope in everything else or in some person or some political party. What caused the Berlin Wall to come down back when I was a young man. Many of you remember this. Many of you don't, but many of you do. When I was a young man, what caused the Berlin Wall to come down so that Western Europe was reopened to the gospel? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't the so-called genius of Ronald Reagan. I liked Reagan. Uh, the, fir the first time I ever got to vote, when I was old enough to vote, he was the first person I ever voted for. I liked Reagan. Yes, he was one of the human instruments. He wasn't perfect. He was a sinful man. But yeah, he was good. I liked him. But I'll tell you what brought down the Berlin Wall. It wasn't Reagan. God used Reagan, but it was the prayers of the church. The prayers of God's people around the world, not motivated merely by a concern for economic prosperity for those people, but a concern for peace and for the churches in those lands and for the cause of Christ and for the advancement of the gospel in those countries. Did you know this, for example? That in the city of Leipzig, 
in communist territory, the city of Leipzig, May 1989, in the historical Nikolai Kirch, St. Nicholas Church, where the Reformation had been introduced there some 450 years earlier. Did you know that a small group began to meet there in one of the church's rooms to read the Sermon on the Mount and to pray? The group began to expand. They had to move to a larger room. And finally, they began to meet in the central part of the church. The communist authorities were greatly alarmed by this, and they, would, they sent officials, kind of moles, to be among the people to attend. They threatened the gatherers. They temporarily jailed some of them. On prayer nights, they actually blocked the city's nearest Autobahn off-ramp. Then on October the 9th, 1989, some 2,000 people crowded into that church to pray and another 10,000 gathered outside. And it was soon after that that the Berlin Wall came down. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians complain a lot about what's happening in our country. And I understand that. I'm alarmed. I, I do. I do. I have to say, I do it too. We're grieved. We're rightly grieved by the immorality and the wicked policies of many of our civil officials. We fret a lot about it. But do we pray? Really pray? Is the church praying? Not just our, our church and other churches. Are we really praying? I believe that the world is yet to see what God can do to a praying people. Are we as the Christian church, are we as a church praying for our leaders as we should? God only knows what can happen. You know, we can get all, we can get all upset and think, man, how are we going to take back the government and how are we going to take over things? And maybe we need to... What about praying? And what about some of, some of these guys that are really into that kind of thing? Why don't they show up at prayer meeting on Wednesday night? Where are we on Wednesday night when we gather here to pray? And to pray for our country? What would happen if God's people really started praying? J.C. Ryle, in a sermon based on this text, mentions some of the challenges and enormous difficulties kings and rulers and authorities are faced with. There are the many temptations that surround them, the countless knots they have to untie, the immense responsibilities that lie upon them. And I might add also, think about the many weighty decisions that have to be made, the pressures of the various special interest groups trying to influence them. The fearful prospect of war in the Middle East and war with China over Taiwan. The sobering reality of their accountability to God for how they fulfill their office. And they are but weak men and women. Even the best of them. And they are sinners. Men and women who need to be saved. Just like we are. Brothers and sisters, we must pray for them. Even the ones we don't like very much. We may not like some of them, but at the same time, we must love them for Christ's sake and love them enough and love the cause of Christ enough to pray for them. We have the kinds of prayer we are to engage in, the scope of our prayers, who we are to pray for, 
all men, including those in positions of authority. And then we have thirdly, one of the goals of our prayers for them. Specifically speaking here about our prayers for the government and its officials. What is to be our goal? What's our concern? What's one of the results of the church, church is praying for them, praying for their salvation, praying that God would give them wisdom, that God would guide them and direct them in the decisions that they make and the policies that they adopt and that they implement. What's one of the goals for which we are to pray for these things? Well, look at the text. Paul writes, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. There is this concern that we as Christians and as a church may live in a peaceful, orderly society. One in which, undisturbed, we may live our lives in godliness and reverence. It could be translated godliness and dignity. And all of this has been helpfully summarized in this way. The concern, the goal of our prayers for our government is to be that peace may be established and that piety, godly, dignified living, may flourish in our land. That peace may be established and piety may flourish in our land. First, we have these two words, quiet and peace. Lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, their meanings are very similar. Together, they speak both of inward calmness and tranquility and freedom from outward disturbance such as war or civil unrest and civil strife. And Christians are to be concerned to live that way and in, to live in such a context. We are, to be a, we are to aspire to be a tranquil people going about our business serving our Savior. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 11, we urge you, brethren, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. Brothers and sisters, we're not to be known as a people who are constantly creating disturbances. We are not to be rabble-rousers or those who make a general nuisance of ourselves in the way we respond to our government. We are to pray for them, and our goal is that we might lead a quiet and calm life, minding our own business and fulfilling our God-given responsibilities. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 10 verse 3, though we live in the world, we do not wage war like the world does. For the weapons of our warfare, he says, are not carnal. Our weapons are not guns. They're not protest marches and placards and political rallies and certainly not fomenting an armed revolution. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual weapons. And yet they are powerful weapons. Mighty, Paul goes on to say, in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How does the church best do that? Not by carnal weapons, but by spiritual weapons. The proclamation of the word of God. And then one of those weapons is prayer, and that includes praying for the government and its leaders. And again, doing so with the concern that we might conduct ourselves as Christians, not as busybodies, Paul says, getting all worked up about many things, many of which we really have no idea what we're talking about. 
but as those who are seeking to live calm, tranquil, godly, dignified lives and to get on with our ordinary work and with the things God has given us to do without disturbance. And that includes, as indicated by the verses that follow, the great work of advancing the gospel and the salvation of lost sinners. Four, verse three, as we'll look at, we'll look at this next time. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But if the country is in chaos and Christians themselves are even part of the chaos, instead of being advanced, this great cause of seeing sinners saved will be greatly hindered. Well, I'll give you a lot to think about this morning. As I close, what can I say before we leave to those of you who are not Christian? You're not, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean you've never been saved from your sins. The guilt of your sins is still upon you. The eternal punishment for your sins is still hanging over you. The power of sin is still controlling your life. And you're not reconciled to the God who has made you. But you sit here this morning condemned and on your way to hell. What do I say to you before we leave? Well, I have good news for you this morning, my friend. God desires your salvation. He desires your salvation. He is able and willing to save you from your sins. From the hell that you deserve, he's willing to be reconciled to you and to receive you and to change you and to make you one of his children and to give to you eternal life and glory. He has provided a savior for you, a mediator, who has paid the ransom price for sin by his atoning death on the cross. And his name is Jesus Christ, God the Son, who became man and died on the cross as the substitute for sinners receiving in his own body and soul the punishment that you deserve for your sins, that you might go free and that you might be saved. Jesus Christ, clothed in all of his perfect saving work, Jesus Christ and what he has done is God's gift of love to you. And all you must do by faith is receive this Christ, the whole Christ, to be both your Savior, your Lord, and your King. Receive him as he is freely given to you, as he's freely not given to you in possession, but given to you in offer. God says, take him. He is the Savior. He is the Savior of the world. That doesn't mean he saved everyone in the world, but it does mean he is the Savior of the world by offer. He is the only one who can save anyone in the world. And he is offered to all who hear the gospel as God's free gift of love. He's accomplished everything that's necessary for our salvation. That salvation that includes deliverance from the guilt of our sin, from the punishment of our sin, from the power of sin over us, giving, not only forgiving us, but giving us a new heart by his spirit who comes to dwell within us. And God says, here is my son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Savior for you. Come and take this gift 
to yourself. Don't hold him out there. Don't just say, well, I believe that's true. Take him. Personal application to yourself. Receive him. God says you're not gonna, you're not gonna be imposing upon God if you do that. He calls upon you to do that. He urges you to do that. He even commands you to believe on his son and be saved. Take him, receive him as your Lord and Savior, and he will save you. And your life will never be the same. He will be with you all the way to the end. Well, may God bless his word today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, his clarity, his power. Lord, we wish to humble ourselves in repentance before you that we have not, I know I haven't, prayed for our leaders as we ought. Nor have we prayed with faith. Often, Lord, we've prayed in a perfunctory way, not really believing that you can do exceedingly beyond and above even what we might ask or think. And so I pray that you would stir all of us up as a church to pray with greater earnestness and confidence for our country and for its leaders and for the countries of the world and for the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, both here and abroad. And Lord, we pray that there will be a day when we'll be able to look back in glory and see that the prayers of your people here, through your working through them, it's a mystery to us how the two go together, and yet you've told us that they do, that we'll be able to look back and to see that these prayers, our prayers, accomplished great things for the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org. Dot O-R-G.